Good evening. I'm very thankful for the chance to open up God's Word with you. It really is one of the great privileges uh, in my life to be a part of a church family and to consider what God is trying or is teaching us in a particular passage of Scripture. So I pray that God will receive all the glory as we uh, look at these verses. If you will indulge me with a personal story to begin with tonight, I'd like to tell you about a friend of our family. While Julie and I and our three girls were attending the church where I was saved 30 years ago or so, we became friends with an older couple named Wendell and Estella. In 2009, at the age of 85, Wendell passed away. As I began studying the passage we have before us tonight, my memory has returned many times to to the short visit that Julie and I had with Estella after Wendell's passing. We knew we would not see Estella again. She was moving to Texas to be with her daughter. What she said on that visit, however, has remained with me. You need to know that Estella was from Alabama. So her pronunciation was as follows. She said almost enthusiastically, now it's just me and the Lord. It's just me and the Lord. By God's grace, Estella is now 95. We're able to touch base once in a while on Facebook. The point is Estella knew her Bible. She knew that the season of her widowhood would be her season focused almost entirely on God. After studying our passage for tonight, I realized that what she was expressing was a correct understanding of the role she could now fill as both an older sister in Christ and the kind of widow we will learn about in these next few minutes. When we began our study of this book last September, Pastor Brett outlined for us seven activities that would ensure a church will faithfully support the truth of the gospel. As we concluded chapter four in our last Sunday evening, we saw six fundamentals focused on faithful discipleship. Now, beginning in chapter five, we are going to see what is another activity that generally can be described as correct confrontation. We can see this fleshed out beginning in chapter 5 and continuing really through the the rest of the book. In our passage this evening, the first 16 verses of chapter 5, Paul is teaching Timothy to confront various age groups in need of correction and to care for widows appropriately. We then need to understand how this confrontation and care should work. By God's grace, we can answer that question as follows. In verses 1 through 16, we see two instructions that show us how to appeal to members needing correction and how to define and care for true widows. Two instructions that show us how to appeal to members needing correction and how to define and care for true widows. So let's dive in. 
Verses 1 and 2 are the first of the two instructions Paul gives to Timothy. And we need to remember that Timothy is the leader of the church at Ephesus, and he was relatively young at that. Verse 1 reads, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger man, men as brothers. The term older man is the same one used to speak of elders, used later in this chapter in verse 17, as well as in Titus 1.5. In this verse, the term is a little bit more general and is referring to a male, and in verse 2, a female, of advanced age. We next need to look at sharply rebuke a little more closely. The New King James, as well as ESV, will say, do not rebuke. But sharply rebuke is one word in the original. It means strike upon, literally to inflict a blow. So metaphorically, it is to reprove, rebuke someone sharply or with harsh words. What is the contrast we see in these first two verses? Paul tells Timothy to appeal to him as a father. So Timothy, and by extension, we who are part of a local body are to confront those who do need to be confronted, but do it with respect and honor as we would our own father. The word appeal is rich. It means to come alongside of, encourage, strengthen. It's a very positive approach. This word is used three other times in Paul's first letter to Timothy. Paul concludes this verse by then referring to younger men as brothers. This can actually mean to treat the younger man as you ought to treat your younger blood brother. Or of course, more broadly, as a brother in Christ, a fellow sojourner. Verse 2 continues this idea. Not sharply rebuking, but appealing. But now we're focused on older women and then younger women. The older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. The term older women is the feminine for the same word older men in verse 1. The word appeal is still in play as we consider both older and younger women. One pastor put it so well, he said, this presumes an approach which is rich in respect and deference. Timothy had a heritage from his mother and grandmother. Paul knew this and appealed to him on this basis in his second letter, 2 Timothy 1.5. A wealth of vivid memories may well have informed Timothy's mind as to the apostle's intent as he read these words. Before we look at applying this, let's look at the end of verse 2. The younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul here is calling on Timothy to shape his relationships toward individuals after the pattern of a healthy family. In term, the term all in all purity is added as especially relating to a younger man's relationship with the younger woman who does need an appeal for godliness. 
purity is sinlessness of life, cleanliness. Paul is warning Timothy to be acutely aware of the temptations involved for younger men and younger women. It's been observed that to treat younger women as sisters means keeping some degree of separation, presumably to guard against the possibility of sin and damaging one's reputation, but also damaging the reputation of the church. So how do we go from understanding these two verses to thinking, knowing, and doing something with them? Paul has given us all the age groups that make up the part, part of the Ephesian church and by extension that make up our own local church. So do these first two verses just apply to Pastor Brett, the elders, to leadership? Absolutely not. Throughout this letter, and really Paul's letter to local churches, Paul is teaching us about how we interact as a local church, a local body of believers. We are to strengthen our fellow believers as instructed in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Paul knows that Christ loves the church and died for it. So how do I apply this? How do you apply these four categories? The picture of a healthy family relationship is still a beautiful picture for us when we consider how we relate to our fellow believers in this church and beyond. In the best sense of the term, we treat each other like family when it comes to rebuking or instructing Many of you know that Julie and I are experiencing the blessing and I would also say the challenge of having both of my parents and both of her parents alive as I approach 70 years of age. I have tended to sometimes sinfully wear this reality as some kind of a badge of honor. But over the last 30 years since my wife and I moved here, And one of the reasons we moved here, there were many, was to be close to her parents. I have been reminded and really reprimanded by the Holy Spirit that I am to treat my aging parents and in-laws with a respect that they deserve. Paul is instructing Timothy and the church to appeal to those older when we in a similar way. In keeping with this same thought of treating those needing instruction as family, when a younger brother in Christ needs to be corrected, we treat him as a younger brother in Christ needs to be treated. We really are treating him as an equal. We're on the same footing in God's sight as siblings in God's family. So how do we apply these verses? We rely on God's word and the Holy Spirit when we approach any member of our spiritual family 
to appeal to them regarding their sin. I think there's a principle involved. Respect is never out of order, especially when confronting sin or trouble. Respect is never out of order. Verses 1 and 2 cover the instruction Paul gives Timothy and the local church regarding appealing to a brother or sister in sin. Verses 3 through 16 are the second instruction. Instruction defining and caring for true widows. I see three points being made by Paul in these verses. Verse 3, the church must honor its true widows. Verses 4 through 8, the church must help families honor widows. And verses 9 through 16, the church must use wisdom in honoring widows. So point number one, the church must honor its true widows. Verse 3 simply reads, honor widows who are widows indeed. I think we in the 21st century may be tempted to think that Paul is spending an inordinate amount of time on widows. The care of widows was a theme, however, that the Ephesian church would have understood. This understanding goes all the way back to the Mosaic law. John MacArthur put it this way, honor widows, when Paul says honor widows, he's using the same idea, really borrowing the thought out of Exodus 20, 12, and elsewhere regarding honoring your mother, honoring your father, when he says honor widows. He not only has in mind the idea of respect, like we talked about in verses 1 and 2, but he's also talking about financial support. That basically means they cared for you when you were young, you you care for them when their need arises in their old age. Before we go further, we need to look a little deeper at the word widow. We would typically think this means a woman who has lost her husband through death. The original meaning of this word is simply a woman lacking a husband. How or why she is lacking a husband is not necessarily defined. So the broad implication for us, this definition includes women whose husbands have abandoned them, women who were in a sinful relationship before they came to Christ and are now without financial support or family support. It also includes women who have chosen never to marry and, as we will see, are serving the church effectively. It's not just those whose husbands have died. The word indeed, truly, as opposed to what is pretended or false, it's cleaner of a truth. We will see widow indeed defined further. The principle is that we are to care for those single women, and especially older single women, who have no other source of income. So we said that verses 3 through 16 are Paul's second instruction. The first point he makes in verse 3 is the church must honor its true widows. Now in verses 4 through 8, there is a shift We said that the second point is that Paul is showing Timothy that the church must help families honor widows. The church must help families honor widows. 
Verse 4 reads, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. The financial and material part of the honor called for in verse 3 has a condition. Note the word but. We've learned many times that when we see this conjunction, it means there's a contrast. As Paul is teaching Timothy, as he's teaching the church in Ephesus, we also need to be taught. If the widow, the single older sister, has children or grandchildren, the responsibility for her care is first and foremost theirs. Note the word grandchildren. This is the only time in the New Testament the word is used. Used, and it refers to descendants more generally. It's kind of a general term. They is referring to the extended family, not the widows. So how, how should they care for their widowed loved ones? They must learn. So how are they to learn? They first must learn to practice piety in their own family. This practicing piety can be defined as the outward evidence of a genuine faith in and reverence for God. The second thing to be learned is added by the word and, and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. There is a sense of a continual action of paying back a debt owed or rewarding, rewarding someone for something for this is acceptable in the sight of God, hearkens back to the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. It is acceptable. This is the principle I see in this verse, or one of the principles, a failure in piety toward my parents is a failure in piety towards God. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. Now signals, we're still continuing to, the, the discussion of widows indeed. And after discussing widows who can depend on their families, verse 4 is focusing on widows who are left alone. And don't have family to depend on. Verse 5 is a very real example for all of us of a life focused on the Lord. She had fixed her hope in a situation that the world would call hopeless. One pastor put it this way, such a settled resolve is the practice of all believers. We have fixed our hope on the living God in chapter 4 verse 10. So she is seen as applying the hope that is characteristic of all believers to the uniqueness of her plight as a widow, much as the rich are urged to set their hope on God and not riches in uh, 6.17. The second mark of such a widow, indeed, is that she continues in entreaties and prayer. She is continuing in prayer. Those of you who know me know that I'm not a handy guy. But over the years, I've been forced to be handy. When we moved into our new house three years ago, I, it was requested that I install a grab bar 
so that my father-in-law could go up the two steps from our garage into our house. And I got to tell you, I did not, I put that grab bar in the frame of the door. I was tempted to move it over about six inches into the drywall with nothing behind it. But I realized I needed to be able to support all my weight. I weigh more than my father-in-law, and he needed to be able to support his weight in pulling himself up those two steps. So trust me, I, I hung on that grab bar. Hung all my weight. So here's the point. These widows without family were desperate. This is a beautiful beautiful picture, really, of any believer who is desperate. So what are we being taught? Just as those grab bars must be solid as a rock, we can say that fixing our hope on God and continuous prayer are twin handles by which desperate people can hold fast to God in time of need. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. We know that not all widows and by extension not all of those who are abandoned or left alone give themselves to godliness. Some widows use their singleness to satisfy their baser desires. Any person, male or female, and regardless of their marital status who gives herself over to unfettered pleasure, is a walking corpse. Instead of actually living it up, they're on the path that leads to death. Proverbs 2, 18 and 19, Solomon warns his sons about the adulteress. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Applying this again, if any of us is chasing pleasure, we would say that spiritually we're dead men walking. Paul concludes this section in verses 7 and 8. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his or his own family, and especially for those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul is reinforcing what he's just instructed. This word prescribe is a favorite of Paul's. He uses the compound word often in this letter and others. Its roots were to pass along a message. It had a sense of authority. It was used in a military context. It implies a continual or repeated action. This is to be taught again and again. Why do we live this way? So that we may be above reproach. In other words, so that there will be no grounds of accusation found within a person. And again, the witness of the church is at stake. Verse 8 answers a critical question. What should we make of a person or family in the church who does not care for their own? Especially those in their own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What the Ephesians knew and what we still see in many, many cases is that unbelievers care for their family 
and their family members. We are worse if we fail to plan for the care of our own family. I think another principle can be seen in this section. Practical love is always proof of personal faith. Doing the mundane, the practical care of our family, our church family, our neighbors, is evidence of true faith. So verses 9 through 16 conclude with the third point Paul is making in dealing with widows. That point is that the church must use wisdom in honoring widows. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Let's dig into the original just a little here. The words is to be put on the list is one word in the Greek, katalego. It's only used here in the New Testament. It means to select someone for a group to enlist or enroll them. I did find that there's a little bit of disagreement as to uh, who this applies to. I do want to quote from Dr. John Kitchen. It is unlikely, as some have asserted, that Paul here establishes or recognizes an order of widows who were expected to render ministry benefits to the church in exchange for their support. The present tense imperative calls for continuous action. This is ongoing. So it's probably not an order of widows, but it's an ongoing list that the elders create of worthy widows. So after mentioning the list, Paul goes on. Verse 9, a widow is put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, The widow was to have been a one-man woman in the same way that the qualifications for deacons and elders elders prescribe a one-woman man. Paul then gives us a wonderful list of qualifications for those placed on the list. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works. This harkens back to 1 Timothy 2.10. If you want to flip back there quickly, 1 Timothy 2.10, where Paul says, rather, by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. So verse 10 continues, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Paul cites, Five examples that span the categories of home, church, and community, and include child raising. I think the principle here is clear. The women on the widow's role must be those whose reputation for godly living is well known. Moving on in verses 11 and 12, Refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Verse 12, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Again, when we see the word but, we know a contrast is coming. We are being taught that younger widows are not to be put on the list. Paul's reasoning for this is twofold. 
First, unlike older women whose sexual lives would presumably be behind them, the younger women might be faced with the normal desire to marry or remarry, which would overcome their dedication to Christ. Why was this an issue? They would bring judgment on themselves because they had broken their first pledge. This pledge was probably a more or less formal commitment taking when joining the list of widows. She would have vowed to serve Christ entirely without thought of remarriage. Remarriage would involve breaking that vow, which a first century Christian would have understood as something that would incur judgment. So I see yet another principle or application for all of us in the church. We might put it this way. Even the most resolute can give way under life's many pressures. Verses 13 through 16, Paul is still making his third point that the church needs to use wisdom in their care of widows. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Folks, this passage is so practical. And that we, one that we should apply in various ways. It is hard for our 21st century minds to imagine the amount of work that went into daily maintenance of a family and a home. And if we acknowledge that even today when we have, when we have it so much easier, our energy level does decrease after 60. If we picture a younger widow who has been, is being cared for by the church and has less responsibility for the day-to-day activities that made up all of their lives, we can easily imagine the temptation to become ungodly, to give in to the sin of idleness in all of its forms. This is practical wisdom shared to a young church leader One pastor put the principle this way, hard work is not only productive, it's protective. Hard work is protective. So what should the younger widow do? Verse 14 and 15, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Uh, Verse 15, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Paul is concluding his teaching in 14 and 15 by giving an alternative to younger women rather than being on the list and being tempted to be idle. His counsel, younger widows, should should not take the vow, but should marry, raise a family, manage their homes. Being occupied in this way gives the enemy less opportunity for slander or reproach in the NASB. The enemy here may refer to the church's adversaries who looked for every chance to tear others down. Paul was probably aware of specific cases where younger women had been placed on a list and then broken their vows. Another principle that we might consider Selfish choices are often equivalent to aiding and abetting the enemies of God. 
So verse 16 concludes this third point. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Let's quickly look back at verse 8. Men are the obvious objects of Paul's direction in verse 8. Paul has also included the responsibility of support to children and grandchildren in verse 4. He now is widening the circle to any extended family member, including women. We should note that there are two commands. First, she must assist them. This is continual action again. The woman is to take on the ongoing support of the dependent widow in her own family. When this first command is followed, the second will be fulfilled. The church will not be burdened. Why is this important? So that the church may assist widows who are truly widows in in need. So another final principle, when I care for my own family, when we in the local church care for our own family, we are caring for the whole church. We're taking the burden off the church. I think this passage causes me to look in the mirror and ask, am I serving the church in this way? Or am I complaining about mundane responsibilities related to family? In these first 16 verses of chapter 5, we've seen two instructions that showed us how to appeal to members that needed correction, older and younger men, older and younger women, and how to define and care for true widows. These two instructions are yet another activity that Paul is emphasizing as he is guiding the local church as the body of Christ. This passage calls us to give intentional consideration to the way we treat one another within the fellowship of the church, as well as how we treat our own family as part of our ministry to the church. Why this consideration? So that we ensure that the Lord is honored in these relationships, so that God is glorified. So how do we care for others? As our friend Estella reminded us, and as God's word instructs us, We look to the Lord. We look to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for your word and so thankful that we can see instruction to the local body, instruction to your church, as we see how you instructed um, the church at Ephesus and others. Thank you for allowing us to um, see your will. And we pray that you will be honored in our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.